Hey, welcome to the Extra Podcast. My name's Daniel. I'm joined around the table with Jeff Buckham. Hi. And a long returning guest. Name that person. Hello. It's Rusty. How, how you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long I can do that for. We're, we're here with Jonathan Giesbrecht. You might Hi. remember Jonathan Giesbrecht. He was, he's been a guest on the show before on the program. He's uh, we pa- brought him on. Pastor Jonathan Giesbrecht. He's the uh, oh, worship pastor here at Northview Community Church. Mm-hmm. The redheaded guy who likes mm-hmm. to bounce around. Yeah. <laughs> and and, play, the, and play the same songs every week. Every week. Every single week. Why do you play mm-hmm. the same songs every week? Is there a... Do you just like it or... Why do I play the same songs every week? Well, I, I don't. But for those who feel uh, I do the same songs often... <laughs> Well, Jeff, you're, see, this is the problem. You have the disadvantage because you have to hear the same service four times in a row. Yeah. So every time you hear one service, you've actually heard that song four times. Hmm. So if I've done it like two or three times over a course mm. of three months, it's like eight to 12 times it's you've heard it. Probably true. But for those who do feel like I do the same songs often, um, we, we do cycle through a number of songs. Uh, we do the same th- songs often for the sake of familiarity for some people who don't know Christian songs very much. If I introduced a new song every week and always did new songs, it's hard to sing along to new songs. So familiarity is helpful. Um, also, it's hard to sing along to some of the old songs, Jonathan. This is true. <laughs> Just kidding. No, but this is actually true. Some, yeah, for I, I, actually, it's interesting. If you look at some of the really old hymns that everyone just belts as as a worship leader i get the privilege during these old hymns to hear the congregation singing and it's like a wall of sound but if you're new to church those hymns the melodies and the words are really complicated like they are not something you pick up over one service like it is a lifetime of learning these songs that has resulted in people being able to sing them the way they are musically they're very complicated for the most part Mm. yeah i'm always surprised when i hear well if someone introduces a new hymn and I, oh, I'm like, yeah. I have never heard this before. It's so hard. But then, like, everyone else is singing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah super and, crazy. Yeah, and if you haven't heard it before, like, try to try to follow along. It's like, ah, oh, I'm sorry, where does that melody... I need the bouncing ball showing me going up and down and stuff. because yeah. it's... Like on the Wii, yeah. when you... Uh, mm-hmm. Rock Band. Rock Band. Do you ever play that game? I have played Rock Band. Yeah, do you play Rock Band, Jeff? I have played Rock Band, yes. I, and I also expert? have played Guitar Hero. Mm. Are you an expert? Nope. I'm not good at it at all. Yeah. Mm. Do you game? Do you video game? I am a video game. I enjoy it. No, I wouldn't call myself a gamer, but I enjoy a good video game. Usually the sports games are some oh, of my favorite yeah. ones. I oh. created a character in uh, in the NBA 2K series about four years ago, me and my son did, who was the single best basketball player in the history well, of walk basketball. Us th- like walk he, us through his... I mean, what was? Well, how tall is he? He dominated... We had him at 6'5". Oh, okay. not okay. a big guy. No, 6'5". A 6'5 point guard who... Over over time, we had played so much that we had developed his <laughs> skills to the point where he was unstoppable, like unstoppable. I think he was averaging close to sixty points a game and about twenty rebounds a game. So almost he like was, Steph Curry, almost as good as Steph Curry. Be, he'd only Better. been in the league like I don't know four years or something like that, and he had basically he won the title every year. He's the greatest player ever. So like whenever we watch the uh, basketball now. And somebody said, oh, he's in Steph Curry, the best ever. We say no, and then we say the name of our, our guy. What was the name of your guy? Well, Frank McKinnis is the name they gave him. Oh. So he is Frank Wait, McKinnis. you got a stock name for <laughs> yeah. your character? Well, that's right. Why are we going to name something else? You Frank could name McKinnis him like was the best ever. He was, Billy Bob uh, McGee or something Frank like that. McKinnis, our Frank McKinnis, because <laughs> okay. he played, I think we had him playing for the Sacramento Kings. Oh. And we won the title with him. 
Oh, and then we traded That's to a, like the 76ers. We just decided we were going to get traded to the worst teams no and kidding. see if anybody could stop us. Nope. No, they couldn't. I did that once in, uh, in FIFA. I made my character and I tried to do Danny uh, Markin, but I figured out if I changed it to Danny Martin. The the commentators then, oh, would say, see, "Oh, Balta Martin." That's oh, and they would. I, was, I thought it was way cooler. So see, I, that's exactly my problem. I make my character Geesbrecht, and it's like try to find a Geesbrecht on those games. It's like the closest you get is like I've never tried to find a Geesbrecht on those games, well, Jonathan. I, so there, you know. there you go. Well, that's that's good. That's great. Was Danny Martin one of the best players that ever play the game? Oh, he was phenomenal. At age sixteen, he scored three goals in his first seven minutes on the pitch for Aston Villa. <laughs> And then I get an email from the coach saying, you're not performing at the level that we would have hoped. So <laughs> yeah. they, they sent me down to the lower leagues. I'm leading the team in scoring in their first match, and they sent me down to Swindon Town Good United. Old Swind- Good old Swindon Town yeah. United. And then the next year, we won the title. Then I went to play for PSG. Anyways, <laughs> this is all very complicated and boring. And uh, gentlemen, the, f- the first topic I want to talk about is is really something fascinating. You know, people... Uh, they arrive at church on a Sunday morning. They they might grab their coffee. They might sit in the lobby. First thing they see is they see Jonathan Giesbrecht on stage. He's playing the same songs over and over again. <laughs> then maybe Ron goes up on stage, does his thing, or Imran. Then Jeff comes walking out, does his preach. And uh, you guys will do this over and over. But what the people want to know is what is your Sunday morning routine? Like, do you have a routine that you have to be at the church at a certain time and... You have a certain juice that you drink for your voice, Jonathan, or Jeff, do you have a favorite snack that you like to eat before you go on stage? Did, let us know what, what a day, a morning in the life of Jonathan Giesbrecht. Jonathan, you go first. Well, my morning usually starts around 5.30. I'm woken up by my alarm clock, and her name is Maisie, and she's six months old, like consistently around 5, 5.30. Uh, I'll try to get her back down. Uh, and when I can't, my son will wake me up, and then my day starts. Uh, I, I don't really do too much vocal warm-ups, but I'll have a good cup of coffee, maybe a little bit to eat. It's around 6.30 or 7. I thought coffee was bad for one's voice. It is. So this is the principle with coffee and caffeine. Caffeine dehydrates you, mm. uh, and that's bad for your voice. However, water hydrates you. So the principle, the principle that I follow, and it's actually proved helpful, is for every cup of coffee you drink, you must drink two cups of water to replenish what you've lost and then further hydrate what you need. So, or you could just so, drink like one cup of water and no coffee. Yes. And what if time is that at? Can, what time are you drinking uh, this? 6.30 in the morning or okay. so. That would work having no coffee if you can function on no coffee, mm. which I cannot. So you're addicted to a drug. So I am addicted to a drug. Yes. Wow. Yep. So this has been great. Confession time with Jeff and Dan. <laughs> okay. So you drink your good. coffee, then what? Well, then I'll usually watch Paw Patrol or Daniel Tiger with my son. Mm. That's exciting. We learn valuable life lessons together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm usually at the church by around 730-ish, making sure that everything's good, making sure that no now, one got to the stage the day before and the ransacked for, it. The but, reason for that, though, is that because the night before you actually played the songs. I did. So it's not, yeah. you don't have to get there super early because so some people like, if they were, if work at a mm. church, they're there quite early. Yeah. And in our, in our other venues, like Todd and Nate and the other alternates, they'll be there probably around that time practicing. So usually I come up, I come around 7.30 to make sure my, that everything's still set up, but then I'll also go listen to them and support them if I can in any way. Um, yeah, and then after that, we, we get together, uh, we'll all get together as teams uh, and we'll, we'll pray together. 
right around eight o'clock ish. And we'll pray for a good chunk of time before the service starts. And then we strum our chords and away we go. That's my morning. Three times every Sunday morning and you go home afterwards. And what do you do? I sit on my couch and look at football like a zombie. Mm. Yeah. Sunday afternoon is a crash time for me. Yeah. Or I'll try to be social as much as I can if we have people over. Or we're Do you usually have people over on uh, Sundays? Sometimes we'll actually go to my parents' place and oh, yeah. hang out with uh, family. Let Eli and Maisie see their uncles and aunt and grandparents and stuff. Good. So, just good times. Nice. Jeff, what about you, man? Um, so I used to get up quite early on Sundays. Uh, and then... What time was that at? Uh, like six for me, about six uh, early, and then uh, I would get myself sorted. I used to ride my bike to the church on Sundays. I still do from time to time. And if that happens, I have to get up at about six and I leave and get here about, I don't know, seven, seven thirty, something like that. I don't know. I usually, I, I've, it's been different lately. I've, I'll get to the church a little bit later now because I'm spending a lot more time at home with my laptop looking over some things and, you know, praying and all that for Sunday morning and, and then I'll get to the church either by car or bike and uh, spend a little bit of time here. But I'm usually getting to the church nowadays about eight, about eight just because I have to, I have to be there for a, quite a long time. I usually leave around two. Mm. So, yeah, I'm there. I have a very strict schedule, though, once things start. So I show up uh, like Jonathan. I have to I have to drink a little bit. of. So I don't drink coffee, so I usually actually have a coke zero you do and it's that weird. crazy it's super weird um I, because i do need to wake up a little bit and so like you uh i don't you know i don't i don't really need it but i i tend to use that's what most addicts eight, say 8 30 service i don't need it it's no, your i don't drug. need it I, coke zero it, is it your drug. Without me. It. <laughs> it's your job and then um and then between the services i i actually um I I will have to eat certain things like I have to eat nuts between the first service and second the protein, on Sunday, right? and then they make me a sandwich. God bless them oh. between the next two services, mm. and then after the service, I uh, the, after it's over, I usually spend some time I, between services. Oftentimes, I'll either spend a little bit if I'm really tired, I'll I'll go and sit down for a little bit uh, upstairs in the office or sit down in the area behind the stage where we sit or. If I have a b- b- bit more energy that day, I'll go and roam around and see the different venues and stuff. At the and end then of I go home and I always have, uh, lately I've been having a nap, but I have a new yeah. bed. We have a new bed and the bed is like, just, if you sit on it, it kills you. So in I sit, in a good way or Oh yeah. Like way? it just slays you. Like you, in lay, a good sit, way. yes, you okay. lay down on this bed. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, what? no, that you just, awful. you lay down it. and you're, you're out. You're just out. And so it's been phenomenal. In the last couple of weeks, I've been sleeping for about two and a half, three hours. It's been terrible. I don't oh. know why. Well, on a Sunday morning, after three services, you have spoken publicly for approximately two hours. Yeah. Not including the Saturday night before. Yeah. Yeah, I probably nap for about two hours after that, too. It's a pretty busy 24 hours. There's no question about that for both of us. But, you know, everybody's got their unique challenges in their job or the things that they do that Mm are, yeah, interesting. What I do is not that interesting i do i do have to regulate my my energy levels though i found yeah, like uh sure. so this weekend i was spending more time mingling and talking to people earlier in the in earlier on instead of finding a quiet place and being alone and quiet for a bit um 
so if uh, like the eleven thirty service toward the end, I was really feeling it. I mm-hmm. was feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm this is I just I the tank is empty. Yeah. So it's a bit of a challenge. You know that too, right? Yeah. When and a lot of times I feel I feel bad between services because I'd like to be more social totally. and be around, and I just feel like it's a disservice to our our last service if we come in there just zonked. And it it is hard. It, it's hard to you have to find that balance. You want to be present and be around and be accessible if people mm-hmm. want to talk and stuff like that. And I, I want to talk too. So I know some guys who do five. That's, yeah, that's the insane. most I've ever heard. I do four on a weekend, but I've heard of, I've heard of guys do five services on a weekend and I, I don't actually know how they do that. Yeah. I've done Christmas Eve. The most I've ever yeah, done in Christmas a day Eve, yeah. is Fine. I've done six, six on Christmas Eve. Yeah. yeah, But those are like 15 but minutes. But they're only 15 minutes right? each. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you're there all day. So oh, you're yeah. more yeah. or less, you're on. You have to be on all day. Yeah. yeah. There's one of them that you don't even know you're doing. I, I can't remember doing. <laughs> like, yeah. You're kind of yeah. like, a, you just, it's funny. How Do you ever you, get it when you, either you two are so in the mode and so in the zone that like, you, you know, you could be singing or preaching. You're just thinking about something completely different. Well, that's, you have to be, that's, that's dangerous actually. Yeah. Cause if you get so used to saying what you're saying, it is the wandering of your mind that freaks you out because yeah. you, your mind does come back and then you, you're realizing, where am I? Yeah. What did I just do? Totally. Yeah. Am I in the right spot? I don't even, it's like driving and you know, yeah. some people look at their phone while they're driving and then that, that fear that comes on you, like I shouldn't be looking at the phone while I'm that's ridiculous. Put the phone down. But then there's this, like you look up and you're like, Oh, I was kind of, or if you late at night huh. when you're driving and you kind of, you almost like, like fading, yeah, almost yeah, fading. Yeah. And then oh, yeah. like, Oh, what happened there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. that kind of feeling, yeah. except you're doing it in front of thousands in front of, of people. A thousand people. <laughs> so you're looking ahead and you're like, I have no idea what my, what song am I in right now? Oh no. Is this the right chord? Am I, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be careful. Yeah. It's pretty funny. So if well, people, yeah. people are in the congregation, they notice you guys have a blank face. You might be somewhere else. Well, most, most people don't notice it. If, if you, most people would never, would never I notice. Because anyway. you yourself don't notice it <laughs> half the time. And so, uh, and then you, yeah. then you come to, or there are times where I don't know about you, Jonathan, but they're like the next thing I'm supposed to be doing. I, I'm just, I've done, maybe done it several times, but I just can't remember what yeah. the next thing is because I've been having this second conversation in my mind about the weather outside or about, Oh, that's so-and-so and they're here at church today. Isn't mm-hmm. that cool? Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you notice everything. This is funny too. When people sit in a, in a, in a congregate, a large congregation, people oftentimes treat it, uh, like kind of like they're in a movie or whatever, where they can get up and they'll walk out or whatever. I, I see everybody, yeah. <laughs> whatever you're doing, I, yeah. I usually can see, see it. You think that you're being like all privatey yeah. and stuff. Especially if I'm, it's a little bit abnormal. Like if everyone's standing there singing and you're looking down, yeah. like your head is down, everyone else is and up. We can I see can it. see that. And it you're looks like, funny. And you're thinking yeah. in your mind, why <laughs> are you looking down? Yeah. You're like, are you, are you on your phone? Yeah. Oh, okay. Why do well, you do this? <laughs> There was a guy. There was a guy uh, who used to sit. He's not. He's not around anymore. But he used to sit right on the aisle in the worship services, and he just open his mouth the moment, like open his mouth and put his head back and fall asleep. Yeah, right? uh, yes. the moment you sit up there, I was like, you don't even give me a chance, <laughs> oh. right? You're just sort of like, and and it's it's so like it's difficult because the whole time, yeah. if you he ever was looking at you, you'd be like, this is the best sermon I've uh, ever preached ever, yeah. because you're here with me. But yeah, he. 
but people sometimes are thinking when they do that, well, I, I'm obviously totally anonymous. Yeah, here yeah, totally. Doing this. And yeah. yet, yet this, the speaker knows exactly what's going on. And they're trying to avoid yeah. looking at you or you as the worship leader, trying to avoid looking at you because you're killing me, man. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that gets me the most is when people start talking to each other. And it's totally fine. It's nothing wrong with talking to each other. But like automatically I go to, what are they saying? <laughs> oh, did they not like, oh shoot, did I make a big mistake? Yeah. And then I started like running through the gauntlet of everything they could possibly saying when it could just be like, I really like this song yeah. or I don't but know, you're thinking, whatever. You're thinking, did I'm you, thinking oh, worst I, case. Did I put the same song twice? Did yeah. I forget to put my pants on today? <laughs> yeah. Like, like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh man. Yeah. Best ever. Now, do you guys ever get it where uh, something's like desperately making you laugh and you have to hold it together? When you're on stage, does um, that ever happen? Yes, there have been times yeah. where that. Ta- I, I mean, do you acknowledge it, or do you? Yeah, just one of go- the funny things to do with pastors is to get together and hear them, to hear their stories. Which I mean, on our podcast before, we've done, we shared a few little stories here and there, but like, they're some of them are hysterical because people don't think that you're looking at them. They yeah. honestly, they they sometimes act like they're in their car. Right. Where yeah. they think that there's nobody around. So they're picking their nose or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. And they oftentimes don't, they don't, they aren't completely aware of their, of the language, their body language. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're sitting they're, in front of a TV or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And they don't realize that you can see them. Right. And then, and that sometimes the cross the armed furrow brow it's like sending a message that you don't intend to send. You're just being comfortable, right? Yeah. But there, and you're thinking, like really thinking critically about the what they're saying. Speaking is like, okay, did are you either are you not understanding me, or are you just livid? Yeah. With what I just said, which of course, I don't know. Maybe you are livid with what I just said. Okay. Yeah. And then in the speaker or the worship leaders, you're kind of like, well, what did I say uh, maybe again? Maybe I'm going to double down on this one, right? <laughs> like, you have to decide whether you're going to care or not. So actually, one of the things I pray for uh, quite a lot is the, uh, is, the, is the spirit of self-forgetfulness before I go up and preach, is that the Lord would grant me the ability to not be aware of my own, just to be, to be, be able to communicate and not be, not be thinking all the time about whether or not I, I'm, you know, uh, looking at people the right way yeah. or... Mm-hmm you know, doing the teleprompter kind of approach. Right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. I remember, um, uh, this is a quick story related to this. Like when I was helping out with the high school worship band, Jonathan, way back in the day, I was in grade 12. Uh, we had a, uh, one of the worship interns, uh, he was really sick, but he showed up and he was going to sing and we oh, were singing no. come ye sinners. And it gets to the point, you will never come at all. And he went, oh, and just died. And uh, I remember the whole time, I'm losing my mind. And I'm trying to play these chords. And like I'm closing my eyes. <laughs> and I'm like, I have this big smile on my face. So I'm trying to make it look like I'm just loving worship with God. And having this, you know, like I'm really just joyful. But I, I'm just trying to hold together. It is painful. Yeah. Whew. It's good times. That's good. That's really Vo- good time. the, there's often times where you'll have like, you know, my voice cracks quite often over the course of four services. And every time I do, there's a person on my team who I know heard it and I know is staring at the back of my head with a big grin. And that's where I'm kind of like, look, look away. I can feel you behind me. Look away. Burn on the back of the yeah, head. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. And I, well, yeah. Anyway, <sighs> I'm predisposed to chuckling. So sometimes I, uh, yeah. Sometimes you, you chuckle. Sometimes I chuckle. Sometimes you chuckle. Yeah. Well, Gentlemen, uh, I'm going to take this a little bit of a different, I guess that was a little bit of fun. This is going to be kind of sad. We all know about the the massacre in Las Vegas from the weekend. At the concert, a guy was up in a hotel um, and smashed out his window. 
and just began to fire with automatic weapons upon the entire uh, crowd, the concert crowd, what, 59 plus dead, 500 injured. The guy had 18 guns up there. I read today that he was like a millionaire. Like he made tons of money gambling in Vegas. And uh, he was also associated with a, he had a job for years that was affiliated with the defense uh, industry. Really? So he had a a lot of access to weaponry that, but no prior, like no prior indications that he was the kind of guy that would do this sort of thing. And I mean, there's all sorts of theological implications here, right? I mean, that's interesting hearing what people are saying about this, right? That this, I mean, the, the president said this is pure evil, which of course is a, is true. That's, that's right. What's, what's interesting to me about it is that, um, I, th- I think here's a, here's a guy that nobody could see it coming from and you would not have guessed apparently that there were any indicators that this sort of thing is, which basically shows that, that in inside the heart of a lot of, of all of us is this ability to, um, to hate for whatever reason, or decide that they're, you were going to do some wicked, wicked act. And, and I don't know what drove this man to what he's doing. Nobody does at this point. He didn't leave a message or at least that we know of or anything like that, giving any indication of his motive. But it, it does show you, it, it is a, a kind of illustration of the, of the depth of depravity in the human heart, just in normal, normal human be people. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause yeah. we will, we'll end up, what we'll end up doing is saying, well, this guy's just like Hitler or Pol Pot or whatever. He, he's just, he's a different kind of human being. He's a psychopath. Here. Unlike yeah. the rest of us. When the yeah. truth is actually, you know, actually he had access to weaponry and was driven to some things, but the hatred in his heart is the same kind of thing that happens to us at least for a brief second when somebody cuts us off or something. And I'm not mm. saying you're going to carry out some murderous rampage because somebody cuts you off, but there is this, do you know if you carry that, if you keep carrying that through though, mm-hmm. do you know those momentary like revenge moments? If you carry, carry that your anger through and it, you, it doesn't subside, you have a, you have a pretty significant ca- capacity for wickedness. Mm. Mm. Joe, that's interesting. I mean, you bring up, um, it was just a, it seemed like a normal guy. And I don't know if you've read in your studies of history, there was a book written by, her name was Hannah Arendt, yeah. and she in World War II was a Jew. And I think she went to a concentration camp or she fled and escaped. But in the 19, I want to say 15 or so years after, she made it back to New York City and she's a writer. And she had written about the Holocaust and I believe in uh, various other volumes. Around this time, they found a guy in Argentina uh, do you remember what his name was? Uh, Adolf Eichmann? Yep. Who was the guy who was, he completely organized the Holocaust. Complete, and so everyone, uh, they were having this massive, they brought him back to Israel, and they were going to have this massive trial. Well, the whole world was covering it in news coverage and everything, and she attended. And the thing that they were most surprised about is um, they were expecting to walk out and see this monster, this monster of a guy, hmm. uh, you know, who just looked evil, evil, evil. You know, this is the guy who was scheduling the trains for when yeah. the people would come in and get gassed. This is the guy who was fully committed to all this and seeking to make it more efficient to kill people and, and to murder millions. And the guy walks into the hearing and it's this old man, very small and slender, wearing a suit and, and glasses. And they just look like a, a normal grandpa. Yeah. Mm. And they call it, the, it's the the banality of evil. evil? Banality, yeah. Banality of evil. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And you're, that's, that's right. And 
I mean, you see, you hear this all the time when something like this happens, when there's some shooter somewhere, they always interview the guys on the street on the, on their, on their, you know, where they live or yeah. whatever. And we he was, never, he's such he a, nice such a normal guy. Yep. He had a dog and he walked his dog and we just never saw this. We never saw this coming. And I, yeah. that's because pe- people have, we, we are both made in the image of God and yet we are, we are bent in on ourselves and, and we're wicked. And if, if some, if we let our passions run free, uh, they will lead us into some very, very dark places. And I'm not suggesting that everybody's going to end up becoming a psychopath. I'm just saying that our, the, the, our lusts will lead us into, uh, wicked acts Mm. that take all sorts of shapes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, I, to me, to me, that's the saddest part about this. Whenever I see something like this happen, I mean, just you pray, come Lord Jesus, right? Yeah. Cause that's what you want to, you want to see God's kingdom come finally and his will be done. And, and we also want to, we want to pray for the people who are yeah. obviously who are there and who've lost loved ones and who are in the throes. And so the theology is about it aside, the, the yeah. practical real issues of, you know, people who are going to be traumatized for years because they went to a concert to listen to some country Western music and he had bullets rain down yeah. on them. And ultimately, I mean, yeah, you try to find reasons. You try to say, why, why did this happen? Why? Ultimately, this is just the season where you sit with the, the people who are suffering and you suffer with them. And yeah, like you said, you, you pray like come King Jesus, make this right. Mm. Yeah. Make all things new again. So, yeah, I mean, the whole world sits in that, place of solemnness and sadness and you feel from secular and like from religious all across this this need and yearning for justice and this like righteous justice like this you know the person will get what they want and i guess um even if it doesn't happen in this life that's the great christian hope isn't it that god like revenge will be mine says the lord um yeah and and he will do what is right and the fact that vengeance is his uh gives us a sense of, um, of, of peace and closure to this, because this is what's so, is so interesting. I mean, the other piece about this, if you don't mind me talking about the, the, what's happening in our culture and how I think that this is an evidence of kind of the rottenness in our culture now is that what you did, what you had, what's happened in the enlightenment, which is, you know, in the history of the, of the world and Western world. Anyway, the enlightenment is what happened kind of, uh, I don't know about the 14th or 15th century or so till now. And it was a belief that we don't really need God for life and that Mm -hmm. we've kind of outgrown the church's teaching and the belief that there is a God in heaven and a, and a devil in hell and, and that they're, you know, good and evil force, all this kind of thing. And so we've become highly secularized. So here's a guy who goes and he does this act. And then in order to avoid punishment, he kills himself right now. The secular worldview says that that's exactly what he did. He escaped right? it. In fact, the secular yeah. worldview doesn't even have a category of evil to appeal to. They they are using language like evil, mm-hmm. but that the not the, the idea that there is such a thing as evil depends upon uh, the idea of good and someone who can define what good is, who transcends human beings and transcends all the laws and and you know like cultural nuances all around the world. Is is there one? who defines good and just and right. And so the answer is, if you have God, the answer is yes. If you don't have a God, then no. So if there is no, if the secular worldview comes to this situation, what they should be saying is, this is, this is not evil nor good, the raining down of bullets. It's just it is. Just is. Yeah. The man, when they tried to come and capture him, shot himself, thereby uh, eliminating any idea 
any sense of justice for anyone. Yeah. Man, that is so hollow mm-hmm. and so sad. Whereas the Christian worldview is going to say, no, for, first of all, this is an act of pure evil. It happened because it, it happened because this man is given over to his, the lust of his heart. Uh, and we are all capable of this, that uh, had he repented and believed prior to his death, he uh, would have eternal life. But if he did not, then he will stand under God's judgment. And there is no getting out from under that, right? God is not mocked. What you reap, you will sow. And so here's a man who did this thing, killed himself thinking, of course, because he lives in a godless world that's told him that this is the way that I can get away with this. The moment that bullet went through his own brain or however it is that he, he killed himself, um, he was standing before his maker. Yeah. Who who is going to hold him to account for what he's done. I got to tell you that, that view has way more explanatory power. It has way more therapeutic power. It has way more everything power than the secular worldview. And I honestly, I, I, it makes me angry though, that ideas have such great consequence and what this guy has done and the way he's acted is really the result, honestly, of the secularization of the world is that this man now feels like killing himself doing this has no moral ramification on him. And, and, and ultimately killing himself gets him out from any kind of like judgment. Yeah. But wouldn't the religious, uh, when people, the secular push back and say, well, people of religious uh, affiliations do this as well. Oh, there's no question that people of religious affiliations do this. That's kind of my argument that, that secularism is a religion mm. and secularism has justified this sort of act in his parts. This is what's so interesting about what's gone on before is that, you know, if you get somebody who's a Muslim who does this and you can hear this and some people who are Muslims who gets really angry, here's a man who shows no evidence of any kind of, I mean, his brother was interviewed and they said, he's not, he doesn't have any kind of religious background. He doesn't have any, any commitments of any kind of political views Mm. or anything like here's just, he's just, he's just a guy who decided to do this. And so here you have the secular world trying to look for all their, the, the, the typical old patsies, religion, right? Pol- conservative politics, whatever. And they can find none of it. He doesn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. So what are you left with? You sad old guy. Right. Yeah. And, and, and my point is that what you're left with is a secularist. Yeah. You're left with a man who is basically a secularist who believed that de- at his death, he was just going to rot in the ground who believed all the ideas that the world gave him and he shot and killed everyone because quite honestly, he probably was following that worldview to its natural conclusion that there aren't any moral codes. There aren't any moral ramifications. So, which is fascinating because most secularists claimed secularists won't follow through. They will always cheat and pull morality out of it and pull like appeal to a higher power whether or not they'll admit it. Yeah. Right. And they'll claim that their viewpoint is not, re- is not a religion. And it is, of course, it's got, a, it's a controlling way of viewing the world and it's, and it's beginning and it's end the destination. It has answers for what salvation is, has a whole set of rules. My goodness. It's it. Yeah. And, and it's led in this case to some great, great wickedness, which again is just for me to make the point before that people for whatever, there's something going on inside of us right? That, that pushes us, uh, toward evil and wickedness and self-serving. And we, you know, we, we, we kill, uh, a, a people at a gay nightclub and we rain bullets down on them from on high and we do despicable things, you know, go into a mall in Toronto and start shooting people at a movie theater. Like, it's just, 
it's just it's a it's a sickness of the human condition. Yeah. And it's all I think what adds to it too is because and we were kind of talking about this earlier where with Twitter and Facebook and the news that comes out so quickly like we've never been more interconnected and so whereas like you know 100 years ago you might hear about this thing in Vegas like a day later. But it's so far away from you that you don't feel that connected. And when you hear about it, you have actually the the editors have had a go about what's verified, right? Because you, they've gone through the process of learning from the police what it is that they need to learn. Yeah, when it was a news story. Whereas now you're actually seeing in in real time the development of a news story, yeah, and right. that's why you have the problems with fake news and stuff. So easy. Yeah to produce that through Twitter, through Instagram, through whatever. You can just you can just immediately report something even if it's not true. I was just telling you guys a minute ago there's a guy who broke his or he has uh, he's a soccer player and uh tore he his, tore his um, anterior cruciate ligament and uh on Twitter while he's sitting there on the table being examined on Twitter some reporter is talking about his knee condition and what's going on with his knee it's this that the other thing so this guy he actually tweets back his name's Benjamin Mendy he tweets back in the moment saying how is it that you a reporter know more than a trained doctor who's currently looking at my knee yeah like I don't even know what's going on with he doesn't (laughs) even know what's going on his knee but so here you have this reporter who's wants so fast so it's to be the first one to report this right and all of it, and, and of course, it's it's being done at least online for everybody to. It's clickbait, right? Yeah. Everybody, that's how you make your money online is that you can sell advertising if you get more people clicking on your story. And so, they're scouring, people are scouring, and the uh, the internet and Facebook and for videos uh, that people have posted. Yeah, you know, there was one guy who live streamed it when the bullet started flying, yes. right. which is crazy that now you're you're seeing this happen live. Yeah, so yeah. you're a reporter. Yeah. On the spot, I tell you what, I wouldn't be thinking about live streaming it. I'd be out of there, for real. Yeah. Although, how do you? There, that was a challenge that they didn't. Where, where are you going to go? Yeah. Yeah. It's we can pray for those folks. As I'm sure so many people who are listening have been praying yeah. for them. That's how you hear this. I'm sure that you have been praying. So even now, if you can lift a prayer up for the families of those who've been, uh, who've been killed and those who are suffering from, uh, from wounds. Yeah, yeah. there's lots. Well, it's, it was interesting. I was reading yesterday about, um, you know, we people will say, well, where is God in this? Where is God? It's always one of the questions. How could a loving God do this? You know, but particularly, where is he? And then you have the classic line where, where you just see in Jesus' life how he's always rejected. He comes, heals people, and they, re- they, they kick him out. Get out of here. He comes and does this. Get out of here. Heals the blind. Get out of here. And Anytime they're like there is good, they push back against them. So, you know, they they ask, "Where is God?" Well, did you kicked him out? You didn't want anything to do with him. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you want him? Yeah, but that is what people want. They would actually like they want they want God to leave them alone when uh, when they, when they want to make the decisions they want to make about stuff, and then they want God to show up when things get difficult or hard. Honestly, this is what I've said this before in some sermons. I think that in the modern world, most people want to treat God like he's a puppy, right? That when, you know, if he, if he becomes a nuisance in any way, you just kick him out the, out the door so he can go. But, but when you come home and you're sad, you want him to sit on your lap and lick you and accept you at every turn and make sure that, 
he's always waiting there, excited to see you when, when you show up. But, but he does not interfere with your decision making. You're the boss. You're the one who gets to determine whether he gets to go in his kennel or not. You know, he's sort of just around mm-hmm. for you. And that's the sad statement is that's what, the way most people act. And of course, then they want to they want to have somebody to blame in these moments that's not themselves and it's not the human condition. That's not sin in the world. It's not any of that. They so they go to, blame their puppy. Right. So they blame yeah. they blame the dog. Yeah. Right. Which is or, what. But not even blaming. They, like I've noticed, too, is well, people will just jump on to something that's happening to prove some sort of political agenda that they have. Or whatever. So like they, they will take advantage instead of being like addressing the situation and loving these people. It's no, this is the reason it, it happened because of this political thing or no, it's because of this thing. And it's that's sad as well, mm. because it's did you do you even really care or is it just, uh, oh, this is this another thing that can prove my point. Well, is, was it G.K. Chesterton who said um, when he was asked in a, an article, I believe he was asked, um, He's a G.K. Chesterton is a, a theologian. Um, He's a Br- Roman Catholic guy. British? Yep. Guy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was asked in an article, what, what's, what's wrong with the world or some, something to that he effect. He was asked to actually give, he was actually asked to write an article. Others had been asked as well, what's wrong with the right. world. Yeah, and, and his response was, I am, or something to that yeah, effect. Signed yeah. G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. So it wasn't much of an article, but it was straight to the point. Yeah, yeah. And that's just, it's the taking... It's a, it's the except exactly what we're talking about. It's the accepting the reality that we all have, we all ha, we all have sinned, and we all contributed to what is wrong in the world. So to bring this back to Romans, this is what the argument yeah. of Romans five is. It's that we're born, you're born in Adam, right? And that being born in Adam means that you're guilty from birth, but you also have a proclivity toward wickedness that always finds always blooms into a flower for mm. every every last person. There's nobody who has been born in Adam who doesn't actually end up sinning. Right. They, we all sin. Yep. And we, we sin because we're sinners. That's we're, we're born in iniquity in that sense. And so uh, this situations like this, of course, sh- show that. And the sense you don't need you don't need situations like this to show it. But it's it certainly when it happens, we should be going back to reaffirm our Christian commitments and say, yes, well, there's a lot of explanatory power in the way that the Bible describes the world and, and human beings and what our problem is and how we can be delivered from it. Yeah. But I have a question before we finish. Oh, Oh, that that's totally segued into this. Cool. So when you become a, when you, when you come to faith in Christ, so in Romans chapter six, so I just mentioned Romans five in Romans chapter six, what Paul's dealing with is the question is the question ultimately, um, are Christians free from sin? Uh, and the answer is Romans 6, 1 to 14. Yes, we, we are free from sin. That's the language that he used. And from sin and the language of sin there, sin is seen as a kind of a governing power in Romans 6. So you're free from sin's governing power. And I keep, I've been in sermons, just keep using the image of like a transfer from one nation to another, one governance mm-hmm. to another. And so whether or not you want to convey that as being from one master to another or from the U.S. to Canada, whatever, I use the language lawland to graceland, whatever. But there has been this transfer. So here's my question: in in Graceland, in the in uh, in the world where uh, we are children of God and have been freed from the power of sin, how much victory over sin, real victory over sin, and by sin I mean like besetting sins like lust and besetting sins like gossip and anger, you know, like 
how much victory over that can we experience and what should we expect to experience in the present life prior to either Christ returning or our death? Go. <laughs> I, I think part of it would be, I would think that that's what working out your salvation is. Mm. And so if you're putting things in practice. So that's so, a phrase from Philippians 2. Yeah. Yeah. So working out your salvation. This is how I would, I think I would work it out. If, for example, you, um, this, the, this person, person A, has a real proclivity towards lust and watching pornography, they are not going to have victory in that sin unless they are taking active uh, choices to now hmm. limit my internet time, to put up blockers, to put up stuff like. So are can you, you do that perfectly? I don't know if you can ever do it perfectly. Okay, so that's my question. So you, you're asking if we can have complete victory. I, I'm asking you, what if you're pastor, <laughs> pastoral intern Daniel and pastor <laughs> Jonathan? Do you th- like if you're going to counsel somebody? What are you going to tell them about the kinds of how much victory they can have over sin in their life? Just as an illustration, really quickly, I'll show, give you one of a good friend of mine. He actually used to argue that he did, he hasn't sinned in like he's used to say I haven't sinned in a week. Yeah, and I used to always respond to him said until now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. He just lied. So, but but okay, you, I haven't sinned in a week. But he would say that that yeah. that I I could be sin free for a period of time. If you want to go into history, the Wesleyan uh, there's a Wesleyan um, teaching that talks about like. What, uh, what the it's called teaching about perfection mm-hmm. and they didn't mean by that that you could be completely perfect but you could be free from you, you could be free from sin in any known way right so you might be guilty of something that's unknown but in any known way man I don't know I, this is how I think about it like we because we are we're now in Christ but don't we still have uh, ripples and things that seep in and because we're still in such a fallen world like it's like a it's the mist that always surrounds us so and we we breathe it in sometimes it's always on our skin and so we always kind of have sin on us mm. but we have to remember that we're, we're in Christ and we're righteous I don't know what I said there I yeah yeah I mean uh, this is this is where this is where it, I mean I we, think your illustration answers it I don't know if we Ever is a moment where we can be completely sinless. Like, isn't that what Mormons yeah. believe? That when, when you re- like ask for forgiveness, you can be completely forgiven. But as soon as you sin again, all of your transgressions yes. are added back on. Yeah, yeah. And see, this is where I, I, I always refer back to what, what, what Jesus taught. Like, you know, we, we should see. I don't know. We should see fruit of a person's life. That that, that doesn't mean it's perfect. I, I okay. When you when you are pruning a tree. Um, you know, a dead tree, it's dead to its sin. When you prune it, you should see fruit that next year. That doesn't mean the whole tree is going to be perfect, that the whole, every single inch of the branch has fruit on it. But, but like our hope is that you continue to like, or the the hope of, or the goal maybe is that you continue to work that out. You continue to prune and fight the fight. Yeah. So there should be a level of, I don't know. I don't know if the word trajectory is right, but there should be like a desire yeah. for that. Knowing that you that the victory has come in yeah. Christ and that you will be on the winning side of that yeah. because of Christ. And it's not it hasn't come in its fullness, okay. which is I think an, uh, a common thing that we expect of ourselves that uh, I had I without going into too much detail, I had a friend who assumed that after baptism would lose his homosexual leanings. And when that didn't happen, he was extremely discouraged. But you do you do see though if you end up telling people uh, that you will be free from ba- basically the the p- 
power and even the presence of Senate's pull on you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you tell them that, then that's the kind of thing they expect. And so right. one, of, one of the things, the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the ways that one can misunderstand Paul, even in Romans six is they can read, okay, you're free from the power of yep. sin. You've been transferred into your slave of righteousness, but yeah. then you also need to realize, okay, those are what we call indicatives of grace. And then he follows it with imperatives. So be this person, which assumes of course, that you can also not be this. You can be the kind of person to use the image that I used last weekend, who does walk by the Bugatti and drive the Sunfire. You can be somebody who does this. Yeah. Now, you're a fool for doing it. You, you, you can live in the old man, to use the language of the scriptures, right? You can live in the, in the body of flesh, right? That's given over to sinful tendencies. You, you can do that. Yeah. But Paul's trying to say that you don't have to. And it's interesting how he uses his language because he'll say, he'll say uh, especially in Romans 5, we, we, we have been set free. Or Romans 6 as well. We have been set free, right? So it's past tense. We have been set free. So that's already taken place for right. us. And we will be saved in Romans five from his wrath, from, right? Yeah. So, so there's a future orientation. But the question is, what, what about the present? What about the present? So you have the past uh-huh. of already been freed, the future of being ultimately freed. What about the present? So yeah, how do we live now? And this is yeah. this is why theologians have used this language of there's a tension in the already and the not yet, yeah. the already being freed and the not yet total. And we live in the in the, in that in that tension time where, you know. Uh, we have died to sin, but sin hasn't died. Does yeah. that make sense? Right? That that sin itself as a governing power still calls our name. Yes. Yeah. Right? The old master still yells. The flesh still screams and demands that we obey. Mm-hmm. What Paul's trying to argue is you don't have to do that. You, you've been freed now so that you don't have to. Will you do it perfectly? Yeah. Well, probably not until probably not until the, the return of Christ or, or your death. Yeah. Right? And but... but that doesn't mean that you can't already have significant victory yep. over sin, the significant obedience to Christ that you can't actually see, as you said, this gr- a growth in grace so that I used to be somebody who was really, uh, really committed to looking at pornography. And now I'm, I'm not yeah. mm-hmm. right. That I can actually say that that, that can be the normal experience of a Christian. It yep. doesn't mean that I'm perfect. And I used to really gossip and I don't I used to get really angry, but now I now I don't. Yeah. yeah. And we can become discouraged too because we, that's when we can fall back and forget about the grace and we it becomes the works. Like I haven't, I haven't sinned in so long. I haven't been struggling with the sin for so long. And then, you know, that outlash of anger, like a month later after doing really well, then we just get, we're like, oh, I haven't changed. Hmm. So and you want to square one. We want to say that there are two things that are simultaneously true about Christians. Hmm. Number one that we are sinners saved by grace, right? Which is what you're just saying, that that at, at every day, especially the longer you live, the more you realize how deep your depravity goes. But second, we're also saints who ought not sin. Yeah. So so there's this, like, you know what I mean? There's this tension which says that, no, no. I, and the emphasis, quite honestly, on the New Testament is on that part, is on the saints who ought not sin part. Yeah. So you ought to be always repenting because you're a sinner saved by grace and you'll realize at the end of every day, I, I don't, you know, George Whitfield used to do that, you know, at the end of every day, you just recount all the ways that he sinned against God that day as a, as a, as a means of kind of devotional, uh, uh, you know, dependence on God. But you're, so you're always repenting, but you're also somebody who is seeing over time 
maybe not immediately, growth yeah. in grace, fruit yeah. on the tree, right? You see this, the spirit's fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I really like that, the image of the, the old master calling. Mm. I think that, that one, for whatever reason, it sunk well uh, with me. And, and I think that Daniel mentioned this a little bit. It's a bit of practice and, and practice, how do I say, practice disobeying sin's command. Mm. When sin asks you to do something, getting used to and putting in the proper blockers and the proper, you know, having a support team around you, have a bunch of old former slaves to sin with you, mm. if yeah. you know what I mean by yeah. that. Who have you know? had victory, who, can now mentor yeah, you. Yeah, and, and who are currently, you know, journeying with you. I I think it's easier to say no to your old master when you have a couple of buddies with you. So Yeah, and I think the beauty of Romans 6 is that it establishes at the very front edge of that, though, that... Uh, you you don't have to yeah. go to it doesn't own you yeah. anymore yeah. and so the, the doesn't is, mean it's not going to be hard to say no no absolutely it's still but. screaming your name out and every part of you the old man is still screaming saying you should probably go and do that you're going to have to go do that and even Satan is whispering in your ears you know you sh- you're I own you yeah. and but it's all just talk it's all just talk he doesn't own you you don't have to you don't have to go there yeah. and the great news is we have a master who went and attacked sin and and won mm. and never sinned. I thought I'd, I'll just close with this, this, um, the image of in the garden, you know, Adam and Eve are there and Satan is in this beautiful garden as the serpent. And, and he goes to, um, to Adam and Adam and Eve and brings sin upon them, right? Tempts them and, 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 you know, destroys them. And so then we have the fall and then you flash forward to the time of Jesus where he goes out into the mm-hmm. desert. And it's just, you have this contrast of this beautiful garden where there's life and, and, and goodness. And now a desert where it's barren, you know, and this idea that Jesus goes out in the wilderness for 40 days and goes to basically be, uh, to have victory over Satan and not be tempted. Mm-hmm. And Satan tries to hit him there and he can't do it. And so- that's like... A massive, it's just an amazing picture of this this true Adam. They failed in the midst of flourishing and he He succeeded succeeded in in the midst of nothing. And what a good, like, that is a a good savior. And uh, yeah, it's remarkable when you begin to look at that and contrast that. That was my thought from yesterday and it was really cool. But uh, gentlemen, this might be, we are closing on the 50 minute mark. This might be the longest, the longest podcast in extra history. No, I doubt it. We don't think so. But you know what? (laughs) Have you really? It's time to call it a day. It is time to call it a day. It's been good. Thank you for listening. Jonathan, thank you for coming back on. Hey, no problem, eh? Mm -hmm. That was a good radio voice. Thank you. And this is a good radio program, (laughs) Jeff. And uh, we look forward to seeing you and hearing from you and talking at you. Talking at you. Next week on The Extra Podcast.